Majoring in philosophy, is it a death sentence for your career? Let's ask some of my former students. I'm Christopher Annadale, and this is Life After Philosophy. Welcome to Life After Philosophy. My guest today is Tom Crow. Tom finished the seminary study of philosophy in 2007 at Mount St. Mary's. He's a former seminarian. He works as a Montessori elementary guide now, lives in Ohio, uh, I believe, and mm -hmm. uh, is the host of the American Catholic History Podcast. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, appreciate your uh, making the time to be here with us today. As the, the title of the podcast, uh, Life After Philosophy, indicates, I'm interested in hearing from you what what your experience has been like in the, I guess, now 16 years since you finished the- My gosh. I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It blows us all away. You right? put it like that. <laughs> 16 years since you finished uh, classroom study of philosophy. Right. What what's your life been like? And now looking back after you know, I'm sorry to say it again, a, a decade and a half of, well, of life experience and living. How 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 has that been shaped by the the kind of the kind of work and the kind of formation that you did back then? Go ahead. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I what I thought that just occurred to me. It's almost funny to call it life after philosophy because if a person really dives into philosophy, then they don't have a life after philosophy. It's life with philosophy. And because uh, that's that's really been my experience, you know, I, I did the two years of pre-theology and then one year of of theology, and I mean, I hadn't done any major, any significant, in-depth philosophical studies prior to going to Mount St. Mary's. Um, I was there from 2005 to 2008 overall, and um, I my my bachelor's was in political science, so I had some political philosophy, you know, some of the basic from Augustine and Aquinas and Locke and you know. Rousseau and all those guys, but nothing, nothing super in depth. It was just surveys. So we'd read a few paragraphs from something, but not really wrestle with the whole context of what they were doing. But then when I got into seminary and did those two years pre-theology, just blew my mind, you know, getting into, I mean, going, going all the way back to Parmenides and like, wait, people were asking these questions. That's amazing. You know, this was the foundation of asking these questions. And then you build up from there and you build up from there and you build up from there. And then all of a sudden you're, you're discussing monads and like, what the heck is a monad, you know? And then you get into Heidegger and it's like, Oh dude, you're just thinking too much, you know? And then the, I just, yeah, it, it, the, the progression of it was just amazing. The, 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 the amazing thing was not just the way it built up like that, but then the way the different schools diverged. The way that people went in these different directions, like some of them might have might have talked about multiple different areas, but then some of them focused on others, and some of them focused on others. So seeing all that was just mind blowing. Um, it was it was an entire way to look at the world that I had never thought of before. It was it was incredibly helpful. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't go through all the way with uh, seminary and be, and get ordained. You know, my wife and I have been married for six years now. Congratulations! But uh, thank you. What it what it did for me after school, so after after I left Mount St. Mary's, I moved to Steubenville and I got a job at Franciscan University, uh, and I worked in the marketing department there for 12 years. And just, you know, being there, I was, I already had had a bit of a background in sort of being a wordsmith and being a you know, political communicator. That's what I had done, you know, sort of spin and political communications is what I had done prior to entering seminary. But then once I was at Mount St. Mary's and I had the, a much more firm foundation in what the church teaches and philosophy. And uh, I was able to take that approach to 
to what I was doing at the at 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 Franciscan. But it is the case that what I'm doing now, teaching elementary Montessori at Hilltop Children's House, the school my wife and I co-founded five oh, more than five years ago now, here in our neighborhood in Steubenville. What we're doing here, and I've I've been the guide. This is only my first year being the elementary guide. Yeah, so well, uh, my my mind just went down all the conversations I've had with the kids because anybody, you know, I'm 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 going on tangents and tangents. But what's philosophy if not tangents on tangents? Quite frequently, a lot of what we discuss in elementary is the big questions. So you know, early childhood education, the kids are the kids are just taking in raw data about the world. Their, their, their sensory development, their intellectual development is all about just basically to, the way to describe it is they're just taking in raw data. When they get to about six or seven years old, they enter what Maria Montessori called the second plane. The second plane is where they move from taking in that raw data, and now they're analyzing it, and they're, they're synthesizing it. And they're saying, okay, this is this way, this is this way. Why? What's the difference? Why is there a difference? And in, in elementary, we, we go through these, these um, five great lessons, and the, the whole education in elementary is based on this. It's based on the five great stories that start from the God with no hands, the story of creation. God created with no hands. And then you go through that, and that's just the creation of the cosmos prior to there being life. And then the second one is about the coming of life. And you, why did God create life? Well, he created life. You know, this, is, this is the reason why God created life. And that one ends at just before the coming of man. The third one is the coming of man, and this is where things get really interesting with philosophy, because when it comes to the coming of man, you're talking about what sets man apart from every other animal. His three things are hands, as one of the great stories among my seminarian classmates, tangent on a tangent, was um, Dr. Gertrude Conway. We had her for contemporary philosophy, and she was she was waxing eloquent about of course, this is contemporary, so we're talking about language, because everything becomes about language, just a word game anymore. We're she's talking about language and how different languages have different words for different things that indicates how what, what value they put on things. And in, in, in Farsi, because her husband was Iranian, in Farsi, they have this word for this top digit of your finger, and the word is banan. And she's, she's waxing eloquent about the banan and how this indicates the great, great importance they put on the banan. And one of my, and I'm sitting in the back of the room, just sort of like, yeah, I get it. You know, I'm like, I, okay, let's move on. And she's just gushing about it. And one of my classmates, this is Hayseed from Kansas. Great guy. Uh, Jeremy Huser. I actually saw him a couple of years ago. He's a, he's a priest out in Kansas. He's sitting the opposite corner of the room and he, he, he turns and looks back at me. And in this deep, deep piercing voice, he says, well, Tom, Sorry, because of course I'm missing a I cut off a finger. So <laughs> that was one of one of the best moments. But um oh, no. uh but talking about all these things and where 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 this all develops, you, you talk about what what makes the difference. So first one is our hands, we're able to do things. Second one is our intellect, and the third one is our ability to love. Like we can talk about ant dogs love their their offspring, gorillas love their offspring, but even if we allow that that is similar to human love, the one thing they don't do is love dogs or gorillas on the other side of the world. They can't have this cosmic love. They, they don't have the concept of loving things beyond their immediate circle. So these three things. And then that leads into a whole discussion, and it did, and this is wonderful, leads into a whole discussion of, okay, well, what does that mean that we, that we have this ability to love and we have this ability to reason? Um, and, what, and what does that mean for, you know, 
fairness and justice and all these things and, and the economy and our and what we what we owe to each other of course justice and what we owe to the world etc and that that just that was a wonderful discussion to have with the kids yeah so yeah i i've i've one question if i could break in with i i'm yeah. not familiar with montessori my wife and i have homeschooled our kids for many years but but not in the montessori method I wonder, it sounds, what you're describing sounds very much like what I would call a kind of a theory of the whole. Uh, yeah, sort of classic. we call it cosmic education. In elementary Montessori, it's called cosmic education. Is is this the kind of thing that, that kids respond well to? Do you, do you find oh, yeah. that, that kind of philosophical oh. sophistication at that age? It Oh, absolutely. And this is the age, because this is uh, six to seven years old is when they transition into the second plane. The second plane is all about asking these questions, these why questions. They're they're, a they're stepping away from external order, and they're stepping into trying to figure out their internal order. They're, they're figuring themselves out as an individual as opposed to their family. They are starting to form social bonds that are not within the family. They are developing their sense of justice, their sense of morality. This is when it's happening. Uh, so if you, you know, this is the age to get them, and this is what the other side knows too. This is the age to really get them so that they develop a proper sense of what's right and what's wrong and why not just what's right and wrong but why so it's vitally important that you you, you bring this to them at this age so those, those conversations were fascinating yeah I've, 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 I've talked about having bring philosophy back into high school or middle school education and hadn't occurred to me that that you could do it as early as uh, as the ages you're talking about in elementary oh yeah no i i was i had to chuckle because just one example my um I, there were Two different times this year when uh, board game design broke out in my class. Like one one kid decided he wanted to design a board game, and he he started drawing it out and coming up with the rules and what the different spaces meant and how you could you know the the cheat codes essentially where you could jump ahead and the ones that sent you back and go to jail and blah blah blah. Yeah. And I sat down with them and I said, okay, well explain this game to me. And then like a bunch of other groups were doing decided, oh, I want to make a board game too. Like, Great, go for it. But I had the same conversation with each of them. It started with this one. I said, okay, explain the rules to me. And he's explaining them, and I'm asking questions about strategy based on the rules. And, well, if, if, you, if this is the rule, then why would a person go over here? They could just go over here and avoid that entirely. So you need to do something to actually give them a reason to go over there, or they're never going to. It makes no sense. And I'm going through all this and you know, asking about this. And then I said, okay, so have you written the rules down? No, because of course that's extra work. He doesn't want to write them down. Like, well, if you haven't written them down, then they're not rules. They're just what you think the rules are going to be. You know, so you know, if you're playing this game with somebody else and you've told them what the rules are, but then you get to a point where there's there's somebody's not sure about something, nothing's written down, so they have to ask you, but then you can say, Well, no, this is the rule. And they say, But wait a second, I thought this was the rule. And then all of a sudden, there's a discrepancy about the rules. And since you are the rule maker, you can just change it because it's not written down anymore. So all of a sudden, here I am realizing, oh, my gosh, I'm discussing Aquinas' treatise on justice and law with seven-year-olds. I, I was know. thinking a lot of political philosophy implications uh, yes. there about the promulgation of the law and the written constitution. Right. If it's not written down, it's not a just law. People don't have to listen to it. So Fantastic. They wow. can't. So. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it's it's amazing um, to get into all that, and then of course, when you're talking about you know the creation and how it leads up to humanity, then you're you're able to say from a you know you're able to say okay, well, why did God create all of this? God created out of love, and then what does that what does that mean for why this is right and that is wrong? Well, 
since we're starting this from why did God give us the ability to reason? Well, he gave us the ability to reason so that we might realize that he is all loving and all lovable, etc. And therefore, all other rules proceed from that. Any rule that does not proceed from that is not a just rule. And, and just the looks on their faces, like, whoa. <laughs> Great. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. So, let, let me ask yeah. you a question, if I might. Looking back now, we're just sort of engaging in this sort of you know, sort of memory play where we're just thinking about what you're doing now, what you have been doing. Uh, looking back at the years 2005 to 2007, is there anything you can pull forward or identify right now that was especially significant uh, as either a, you know, a lesson or a skill or a, an element of formation that you think was really important for the life you've lived since then? Having good classmates and good professors and especially older people who've already been through it, who you can bounce ideas off of and talk things through with them and teach. I think one of the most important things to do to really get a grasp of what you're studying is to make the effort to teach it because there is, there is no surer way to know whether you understand something than attempting to explain it in small words. If you can't do that, then you don't understand it well. So, you know, uh, I was fortunate that I, I grasped a lot of these things faster than most. So I was able, and it was a great exercise for me. In the evening study sessions with my classmates, I would be one of the ones sitting there going, no, this is what Dr. So-and-so said, and let's talk about that. And then I, you know, I frequently was one of the in-class tutors, helpers, whatever. But there were a few others who were at, at the same level as I was, and we, we would we we had some disagreements about what what's what this meant, what that meant, how this was presented, et cetera, and what the utility of something was or the benefit of it. And we'd go back and forth, and then then we'd both go and help teach different groups within our classmates so that everybody got you know pretty good grades. But yeah, being willing to have an honest, charitable discussion. This is what, I, you know, in my email to you, I said, don't have your ego, put your ego aside, put your ego aside, put your ego aside, because the worst thing you can do in philosophy is think that you've got it right. Um, well, and just, you, yeah, could I, could I ask you this then on that sure. specific question? The ego question interests me because, well, one might think the popular prejudice might be that, that people with big egos are, are attracted to philosophy as, as a way of showing off, right? You think Descartes even plays a little bit with this in... in Introducing some of his philosophy, right? Yeah. Philosophy says, I found chiefly useful for making oneself, you know, impressive to to other men of learning. I, I wonder if your experience has been that philosophy teaches humility, or or rather, is humility a kind of precondition for for studying philosophy well, or or is it is it somehow both? Yeah. Um, I think there. Um, I uh, okay. I'd say it this way. Humility is necessary to do philosophy well. Philosophy does not teach humility unless a person is honest. Good. Uh, because if a person is not honest, then they will twist and turn and spin, and I know about spin, mm -hmm. to make it look like they always believe that thing that now is obviously correct. And that is not a good way to engage in philosophy because other people don't want to talk to you after that. It's like, well, you didn't say that. You said this other thing, and now you're pretending like you were saying this thing, but whatever. So I, yeah, I think hum humility is required to do it well, because otherwise you get hung up on your own pet ideas and you just keep 
driving at it and like, well, I've got to find a way to explain why this thing I think is right, rather than what is right. Um, that's why it's philosophia, not philo my own ideas of Sophia. Right. You know, it's love of wisdom. What is wisdom rather than what do I want to believe is true and therefore I'm going to rationalize. Otherwise it becomes rationalization. You know, it's not philosophy, it's rationalization. And it, it, there, there are certain areas, certain certainly times when the distinction between those can, can seem difficult because you start getting this idea of like, no, I, I, I'm just, I'm sure this is right. It just feels right. And I just, I, I can't quite put my finger on why it's right, but I'm, I'm sure it is. And then, you know, that can, that can seem like you're just, you know, you're wrestling with, okay, no, I, I'm right because I have to be right rather than this is right because it is right. But until, yeah, still, even in there, it's a matter of just being humble and saying, okay, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's right. But I'm not going to be a jerk about, you know, saying this is right and that's wrong. Um, going back to what you said about love earlier, we might say um, perhaps you, you need to need to be able to love the truth more, yeah. more than you love your ideas of the truth or your absolutely having the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, the first thing you mentioned was that my wife and I are co-host of the American Catholic History podcast. And that's another area where we. Uh, where we we wrestle with some of these things, you know, this this isn't this isn't in an environment where where we are directly inter interacting with people who have questions. This is us looking at the history of the United States, the Catholic Church, in the United States, and saying, you know, there are some episodes and some parts of our history that are we're not quite as proud of as others. Um, like okay, so we 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 look at that and say, okay, what was really going on there? And it's not so much to say hey, how can we rationalize their behavior, how can we make them look good. It really is saying, well, what were they thinking? Uh, so, you know, one of the most significant issues, thorniest issues, is the question of slavery. And there certainly were some who espoused some very unchristian notions of the intelligence of Black people, uh, the, the potential for intelligence of Black people, of, of the slaves. Uh, then there were others who had a view of, we're not, they basically said, we're not sure if they have the capacity for greater intelligence, but Regardless of that, they should be treated well, and they should be educated, and they should be catechized, and they should be given the sacraments, etc. And then there were others who said, no, slavery should be ended. So it's it's a very interesting topic to wrestle with, and not in the, you know, let's just condemn everybody who, who had a bad idea, but um, let's be sympathetic to the fact that, hey, you know, 150 years from now, there'll be people looking back at things that we think are perfectly normal right now going, how on earth did you tolerate that? How didn't you go burn down all the abortion clinics? You know, that sort of a thing. Now, I'm not advocating, but, um, you know, there may be people in the future who say that sort of thing. Well, how, how is it that the sort of philosophical perspective that you've brought then to, to thinking about Catholic history has, has been helpful? I mean, I realize there's a distinction to understand the sort of subjective worldview of people who come to different conclusions, but is is there something more than that that you and and your wife are doing and sort of looking at history in the way that you look at it? I you know, well, because well, one thing that we love to try to do is help people in our own day and age to get lessons from what people in the past did and said and how they acted. So, I you know, to t to take the 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 uh, issue I just raised, you know, abortion. We can look at the way the church and people in the church acted towards slavery and say, um, you know, there really are some parallels to the way some churchmen handle the abortion issue. It's like, well, you know, we should be sympathetic in these ways. Like, ah. But we, we really try to say, let's, let's look at what they were going through. And uh, first of all, recognize that we have a much, much more incredible 
history as Catholics in this country than anybody realizes, even more than, you know, Noel and I realize, and we're probably some of the country's best experts on the topic at this point, 170 episodes in. But uh, also just to say, okay, what, what lessons can we learn? What, what's, um, how did they wrestle with these things and how can we wrestle with them? What, what lessons can we take and how can we wrestle with our own issues of this day in a similar way? You know, it, it sounds like, you know, as, as with uh, much, much philosophy, that the question of self-knowledge uh, really sort of precedes and grounds the attempt to understand mm -hmm. as complex as history. I mean, unless mm -hmm. you're understanding yourself and your own your own sets of value valuations and interpretations and what you bring to the table, you, you, you're not you're not really able to look at something as as even something as simplistically expressed as the facts, uh, and and actually draw a lesson from them. Right. Yeah. There was. Uh, and I'm I'm forgetting the name. Somebody said of a poet, unless the man be known, the the, the poetry remains obscure. Well, that's, I mean, in a lot of ways, that's true of, of philosophy as well, you know, and when you look at the philosophy of like, um, you know, to take a, to take a, an extreme example, oh, shoot, I'm forgetting the very obvious name. I want to say Montesquieu, but it's not Montesquieu. It's the other M name from Italy, the prince. Machiavelli. Machiavelli. You, you take a guy like Machiavelli, he really was just trying to rationalize why they should keep, keep him around. Uh, it's like, oh, no, you're great. And, you know, you're, you're doing everything great. Um, keep keep supporting me, but then you then you go the other direction. You have somebody like Pascal or Kierkegaard, who you know they they were they really were like, no, I have this deep love, and I'm trying to I'm trying to figure this out, um, or get as close as I can. And then you go to those who blended philosophy and theology, and you have you know Bonaventure. It's like, oh my gosh, this blows your mind. So yeah, like learn learn about the person and their situation. And you know what questions were they responding to? What what promptings? What was happening in the world around them that um, you know laid the groundwork for their their thinking? Uh, what was their family life like? What was their you know as best as you can determine what was their moral life like? Um, were they just trying to rationalize their you know passions? Who knows? A friend and I have a joke that there there are fewer. Uh, they make fewer philosophers saints than they used to, although although perhaps the the last half of the twentieth century has has given us more more mm. hope on that score than we have had. Yeah. As we come close to the end of our time here, I wonder if you had any any uh, advice, either practical advice or sort of general intellectual advice for people who are studying or considering studying philosophy now, college students, people who were in a position similar to what you were like back in the in the mid aughts. I mean, I, I kind of said it before, make sure you have a good group of people that you can really wrestle with. Uh, try and find some people who have been through the classes and people that you think have a good head on their shoulders, uh, who can help you wrestle with certain things. One of my great friends, uh, one of those who I really relied on, was, and he's now Father, a priest in Arlington, Father Mick Kelly. And he did not like Descartes. And I don't blame him. I don't really like Descartes either. Um, you know, the, that whole turn really screwed things up for everybody afterward. Now, whether he had to do it or not is another question, but, but I, <laughs> I would go and I would just pick his brain and just ask him, so help me understand why this, like, I, I believe that it was a bad thing to go from metaphysics to epistemology, but help me understand better why. And we sat down and we talked it through and it was really helpful. And then of course, <laughs> More more than once when, when this is when I was in first theology and guys in 
priests who were still in pre-theology came to me asking me for like help with with Descartes. And I'd say, oh no, person you got to talk to is Mick Kelly. He's, he's, he's in second theology. Go to him and just tell him you kind of think Descartes had a good point. <laughs> he'll, he'll help you out. <laughs> that's, that's you bringing, bringing a spirit of peace. and uh, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Next time you saw me, crow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. But no, finding people that can really help you out. And then also, I think something else that's important is, is understanding why you're, you're pursuing it. Are you pursuing it for, you know, some of the things that, that have been mentioned, whether it's to rationalize your own thoughts to, or is it just to, just to get a good job, which, you know, that's a weird thing to go into philosophy for, even though philosophy majors do pretty well overall mm -hmm. in the long run, or, you know, like why, what are your motivations and, and make sure your motivations are pure and right uh, and don't do it if they're not, or reach, I should say, actually better said, recheck your motivations yeah. and find out why they're not good or not pure. That's great. It, it, it sounds like, I just to sort of hit another theme, it's like in, in the life of the church and also in, in elementary education, your, your field now, um, the, the rule in philosophy is you have to have a good group of people, especially a good group of, of authority figures, and you can't do it on your own. No. Incredible difficulty. This is like trying to escape Plato's cave. Yeah. No, nobody gets out on their own. You get out with help, and you get out with help from the right people, from good people. Right. And actually, uh, and here's a difference between uh, – so one of the things I had to grapple with when, when I went into philosophy at Mount St. Mary's was the difference between um, a conventional education setting and the way a philosophy class really ought to work. Uh, where there's more discussion, there's more give and take. Now, of course, some people try to dominate and filibuster, and that has to be dealt with. But um, you know, having a discussion rather than just you know, it, and I'm I'm sure this is something you struggle with, given different class sizes and and class co compositions. How much do you lecture? How much do you discuss? And then, of course, there's the topic. It's like, no, I've got a lot to get through today. I just got to get this out. Um, there are days where it's like, eh, there's not much. Let's talk about this. So I'm sure there's a lot of balance there for even for you as a professor, but you know, uh, finding good professors, finding uh, a good group that you can really wrestle with, finding a good quiet place where you can do the wrestling. Yeah, those are those are invaluable. You're you're really putting yourself behind the behind the eight ball if you don't find those things. That's great. Thanks very much, Tom. Absolutely. Uh, okay, our guest today has been Tom Crow. He's the uh, host of the American Catholic History Podcast. I'll put a link to that in the description of this episode. I really appreciate you taking the time to appear with us today, Tom. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. You too. God bless. Bye. Thank you for listening to Life After Philosophy. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate it five stars and share this episode with a friend. I appreciate your support.